Ahead of today's episode, I just wanted to share a quick warning. We will be discussing palliative care and advanced stage cancer during this episode and hearing from two incredible ladies, Kay Curtin and Shirley McEntee, about melanoma and how it has affected their lives. As both Shirley and Kay are advanced melanoma patients, their stories covered the highs and lows of a cancer journey, as well as the reality of what it is to live with advanced melanoma. If you are affected by anything you hear on today's recording, please don't be afraid to reach out to us at mariekeaton.ie. Now, on to today's episode. Hello there, welcome back to the Mariekeating Foundation Talks Cancer podcast. If you missed our last episode, myself, Bernie and Celine debunked some SunSmart myths to help you navigate the summer safely. So I would definitely recommend you go back and listen to that podcast before you go for your walk this evening. But for this week, we have the honour and privilege to speak to two fantastic ladies, Kay Curtin and Shirley McEntee, about their experiences living with advanced melanoma. So to explain what that means, metastatic or advanced melanoma means that cancer has spread from its primary site or where it started to other parts of your body. This can be very difficult to hear and to cope with for patients and their families. But the great news is that due to advances in treatment, people living with metastatic or advanced melanoma can have a really good quality of life for a long time. Kay, you are a great ambassador for the Marie Keating Foundation and indeed for melanoma awareness. We would love you to share your story and all the trials and tribulations you have personally experienced over the years. Tell us how it all started for you, Kay. Um, yeah, I guess my, my story goes back a long way with melanoma now. It's been s- almost 17 years since I was first diagnosed. Um, I had my primary and the center of my back and I found it because I am at the time I am I was just after having my son and he was about six months old I think and I was going to the doctor with him about something else and I just in a kind of a very blasé way mentioned to the doctor that I had this itchy spot in the middle of my back and would they mind taking a look at it and you know, really, it was just more that it was irritating me, you know, because it was right on my brow line. I didn't think anything really of it. Um, so he had a look at it and he advised me to go to a local um, pigmented lesion clinic. And it was a walk-in clinic and it was at a local hospital. So that would be for, you know, suspected um, skin cancers on your skin. He gave me the letter. I didn't think too much more about it. And I rocked up there on the Friday with my son on in his buggy. And the place was jammers. Um, and I just thought to myself, Do you know what, it's just an itch on my back. I'm not hanging around here. Um, you know, because I had him, he was quite small at the time. But I sat down and I waited for a few minutes. And then I noticed, you know, that there was actually lots of clinics. So there was a lot of people on on duty that day and people were moving through quite swiftly, which was great. So I guess I was seen within maybe about 40 minutes or that nice doctor. You know, he just asked me some very routine questions, which I now know are pretty standard about my history um, of sunburn and any family history of skin cancer and had I used sunbeds. And as he was talking, 
um, you know, little red flags started going off in my head. And I started becoming a bit anxious about this, that it might actually be something more serious than I had imagined. He recommended that um, I had the mole removed just as precautionary. He wasn't giving me any indication that I had to be overly worried. So I left quite happy. I'm inquisitive um, to know whether you did, you know, expose yourself to the sun if you did use sunbeds and if you had a family history at all of skin cancer? I ticked all three boxes, Helen, um, unfortunately. And that was probably why my um, alarm system went into overdrive about it, because I would have been very badly burned when I was a child. You know, there was no such thing as sun lotion or sun care. I can remember me and my brother being in a caravan down in Tremor and literally peeling strips off of each other. Um, you know, horrendous when I think of it now, the damage that we were doing to ourselves. But we didn't know any better at the time. You know, everybody was the same. That wasn't unusual. Yeah, and I'm sure your your parents probably weren't aware at all either, were they, as mine weren't? No, my parents wouldn't have been. I mean, the only sun precautions I could ever remember my my father taking in particular was wearing, he would wear a sun hat when he was on the tractor. That was about it. Um, my mom was actually quite ill all throughout my um, through my young my younger years, so you know it wouldn't have really um, been a factor. You know, something that we would have spoken about in terms of you know looking after ourselves. So, and then I guess you know coming up to my wedding as well. That was in the early you know early mid nineties. It was very commonplace to get a tan for your wedding. And the most convenient way to do that was to use a sunbed. So I would have used a sunbed coming up to my wedding as well. And then I found out, I, I was aware when I went for my appointment, I had a vague um, recollection in my mind about a first cousin of mine who had had melanoma. Um, but, you know, I didn't really think about any link that there could be any link, family links. It wasn't until he mentioned it. And then, of course, I suddenly remembered my cousin who had had, um, you know, like a lot of surgery and I knew she had been on treatment. And, um, yeah, so they, those were the red flags. And then they then after that, sadly, a couple of years after I was diagnosed, another family member um, got melanoma she was just 17 and she passed away when she was 23 and that frighteningly for me was the next generation down because she had been a first cousin my first cousin's daughter if you understand the connection so it was so it was like it had skipped down a generation um now i, I have had genetic testing and my cousin who's still alive came with me and they didn't find they didn't find any genetic link between the two of us for to explain the melanoma in our family but as they explained to us at the time they could only test for what they're aware of at the moment and there may be something there or it might not be real it might not be anything to do with a genetic link we may just have been unlucky you know me and my cousin are the same age bracket so we would have had the same experiences growing up of getting sunburnt and you know other factors so I went so I got an appointment uh, eventually I mean there was a bit of a wait which did concern me but it obviously didn't overly concern me because I went off on holidays that summer and I was going around in my bikini top and I can remember pointing out 
on my back <laughs> to my friend, you know, oh, yeah, that's that mole that they're going to take off, you know, still in ignorant bliss, I guess you could say. Um, and eventually they did remove it um, that September, towards the end of September. And then I got called back again. I arrived with my son and the buggy. You know, I was just going back to have my stitches out. I wasn't thinking about getting biopsy results or being told that I had cancer. I met a very nice nurse um, who was actually from someplace very local to me where I live. So we had a big, long chat. I was very relaxed. And then they called me in and the doctor said to me that, um, you know, those famous words, I'm really sorry to tell you. But, um, you know, it it was melanoma. And I, I was I was stunned, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I'm, I was sitting there with my then eight-month-old son on the buggy beside me. Um, so, of course, naturally, you know, I and I had to ask him, I, you know, is, are so you telling me that I have cancer? And he said, yes, I am. It was, um, you know, very traumatic. Yeah, Kay, did you know, like, I know, like you were saying, I'm telling you, you have cancer. Did you know what melanoma meant when he said it? I'm not sure that I I did really, you know, I guess I knew it was cancer, but like everybody else, I had that stereotypical idea of it being the not so, you know, they can just cut it out and get rid of it kind of cancer, you know, not real cancer, <laughs> if there's any such difference. I mean, all cancer is cancer, even the smallest little bit of cancer is still cancer, um, you know, so I did I did I guess somewhere in the back of my mind no but I guess I needed to hear him say it as well after that then I mean there was there was some confusion and I was given wrong information on that day about my staging which added to the traumatic nature of um of what was going on and it was a Friday afternoon there wasn't really anyone to talk to the confusion was around the staging and he had said to me that it was a stage four melanoma so you can imagine when I when I heard that um I automatically thought that I was going to die so um yeah that would that was really upsetting very frightening but what it was was it was actually that the melanoma was four millimeters deep but he, I don't know why it happened, but it, that's the way it was explained to me that day that it was a stage four melanoma. I remember that weekend, I literally, it was like an out of body experience. Um, I, di- I didn't know what I was going to do. I had these three small children that needed to be looked after. We were living in London. We had very little support around us. I mean, I had some friends, but I mean, everybody had small children like me. You can't just you know, offload your children on um, other people all the time. Hey, that was a life-changing event for you, Kay, at that moment in time. Yeah, I'll, ne- I'll, I'll actually, I think, you know, that, that weekend will always stay with me as one of the worst times of my life. And I would even say that I felt worse at that time than when I subsequently did find out that I had stage four melanoma. So, you know, my life went on pretty much um, very ordinary after that. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom. I did have some part-time jobs here and there. Um, I can remember I was coming up to my 40th birthday 
and um, I was doing a lot of running. Um, I, got, I got quite fit. I'd done a half marathon, a lot of 10Ks, 5Ks. Congratulations. Yeah, you know, I absolutely loved it. It, it. That was my time, my getting out of my headspace time. Um, and, uh, you know, things were good. I am... Um, the kids were getting older. My daughter said started secondary school. My son was coming towards the end of um, primary school. Um, I felt good. Um, I felt fit and healthy. I had lost a good bit of weight, but, you know, I was exercising a lot. Um, and then um, it was at the towards the end of 2014. Oh, I guess it kind of started in... Um, September 2014, I I um, was running back the road one day and my hip seized up. And I just thought that it was a cramp or something running related. And I actually went to the GP and they felt the same, you know, rest. I was on crutches for a few weeks. Take it easy. Maybe I'm overdoing it with the running. Um, so I followed doctor's orders and yeah, it, it got it got better, but it wasn't completely right. And um, I wasn't finding running as comfortable. And we, we were coming into the winter anyway, so I was easing off a bit. Um, and um, I remember then coming up Christmas time, I was feeling a bit under the weather. I was um, working as well. I was, I was working in a bar at the time. You know, I was on my feet a lot. I was tired. Um, a lot of people were complaining then in the new year about having chest infections and things, you know, like we all do. Everybody's coughing and spluttering. Well, pre-COVID time, I guess we were all, you know, um, those were the kind of conversations that went on about, oh, I've got a cold and I've got, I can't shake off this cold. And I was the same, so I really didn't think anything of it. Um, you know, this, I had gone into the doctor and, um, a couple of times um, and I next thing it was probably um towards the end of january i started having stomach problems i was finding it very difficult to eat um and the weight really just started falling off of me and when i think back now you know i was actually having night sweats as well at the time um you know these should have all been red flags and maybe you should have been aware of them i guess if you know if, if if that was a sign of cancer returning or whatever it was, you know. Exactly. I, I wasn't really aware of what the signs or symptoms would be if it returned. Um, I mean, I knew to check my lymph nodes, um, but I hadn't experienced any swelling or anything that I could, you know, identify that way. Because, I mean, I had gone to the hospital a few times, you know, about saying, thinking that I had felt something and it would be checked out. and But this was different, um, you know, and I guess I put the night sweats and that down to having the chest infection, you know, almost like a flu-like thing. But I mean, when I'm talking about night sweats, I was uh, getting up, having to change myself, having to change the bed. My husband was soaked from lying beside me. I mean, this wasn't natural. Um, and then my hip it um, started playing up again, so I ended up at a local A&E and they felt that it was sciatica, um, you know, something like that. I was given a lot of painkillers and I rang my GP then one 
one day and I said to her, you know, I'm really not feeling well and I think that I need to go to the hospital. Um, and we we had I had been to see her the previous week and I was actually waiting for an ultrasound for um, um, gallstones because we felt that maybe this might have been what the problem was. Because it had been so long at this stage. It was, had been 10 and a half years since I had melanoma. I guess the flags didn't go up about it. Um, so I ended up, she gave me a letter. I went in and collected it. And she said, look, go go to the hospital when you feel you're ready to go. I remember leaving her practice and I rang my husband straight away. And I said, come home now because you're, you're driving me to the hospital. I I can't I can't go on like this. I, I was literally I wasn't eating. I was just having um, you know liquid at that stage. So I got to the hospital. We had you know it was a packed A and E back in that time. Um, this was twenty February twenty fifteen. We we had to wait for oh gosh I don't know we might have been waiting for about four hours in A and E. And um, I could feel myself sinking and sinking, you know, feeling worse. Um, I was trying not to say too much to my husband about it. Um, when the nurse, when they called me forward to uh, to come into the nurse, um, I can remember we got as far as the door of the triage and I literally just collapsed. They had to rush off and get a doctor and I was hooked up to um, an IV painkillers immediately and they told my husband you know that they were admitting me um and that you know he might as well go home because he wouldn't be allowed in because I was going to be on a trolley in A&E and there was nowhere you know you can't stand around beside somebody in a tro- on a trolley in A&E so I spent the night on a trolley in the Mercy and uh, they told me that I would be having a scan in the morning um so you know but I was just so much in pain and so um, tired at that stage and just wanted solutions that um, I wasn't even thinking about melanoma you know it hadn't it had really come back into my head and it didn't until maybe later on the next day and then I really started to feel again that yes that maybe this is maybe this isn't something simple maybe this is cancer again I had the I had the scan and um again it was the doctor came around to see me and I he had actually come straight out of surgery and I asked him about results and he was very you know oh well you know um I've been in surgery all day I haven't had a chance to look at them would your husband be around in the morning and we can discuss them then and that was when I knew you know Asking my husband to be in at seven o'clock in the morning for rounds isn't isn't a good sign in anybody's book. I didn't voice my concerns to my husband, but um, all the time I knew myself, and I knew as well because the evening before I had been on, they had put me on um, an antibiotic and a a different painkiller and those had been removed and I had been giving given um a morphine yeah so I mean I knew what was coming 
Um, so they did. They called us out and they um, brought us to a room, just the two of us. And um, the surgeon was there and another doctor with him. And I just asked him, I knew what he was going to say. So I just asked him, I said to him, where is it? And um, he said, um, well, you know, he said, it's quite extensive. He said, there isn't actually anything that I can do for you. But I'm going to put you in contact with um, an oncologist. And um, I'm going to hand you over to their care over in CUH again. Um, But in the meantime, they had to find out what, um, you know, how extensive it was. Um, you know, and actually what type of cancer it was, because there was a chance that it wasn't melanoma, that it could have been something else. You know, I could have got a a different cancer. So I went for a liver biopsy um, later on. Again, you know, what kind of a surreal (laughs) experience where it's not the most um, pleasant experience, let's put it that way. But the staff were lovely, um, you know, and we tried to be humorous throughout it. Um, and then I waited and, um, I waited for my, um, oncologist to come and see me. Uh, Now, at this point, I hadn't had an oncologist in Ireland. I'd always just met a surgeon over in CUH whose care I had been under. Um, and I think that was mainly because there hadn't been somebody who was specializing in melanoma when I had come back from London. I was lucky in that respect that there was now somebody there and somebody who was, um, you know, had trained in America and, um, you know, was au fait with all the latest treatments and procedures. And, um, you know, he he was very reassuring um, when he came to see me. And I always say to him that I'll never forget that, that that was actually the first time I cried was when he came about what was going on, because, um he, I was, I was incredibly ill at that stage. It was obvious that, um, you know, to me even, that I probably didn't have long to live. My husband probably certainly felt that way as well, even though he, we didn't discuss it in those terms, but um, we knew that this was um, a very serious situation. The oncologist came and he came to the side of the bed and he knelt down beside me and he took my hand and he said to me that he was going to look after me. And he reassured me that he had many other patients who were in a similar position to me or had been and that many of them were doing doing well now. And that, you know, without saying to me, you know, in so many words that, don't think this is the end. That was what he was saying to me. He was trying to give me a bit of hope. Oh gosh, that's really reassuring. It was, and it was, um, you know, and that was why then I had that emotional release when when he said that to me. Yeah. Um, And I've thanked him many times since, you know, for that, because I said, you know, it was really what I needed to hear at that point. Um, and that just, you know, shows the difference. That person you're talking about actually spoke with us in our episode three. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Power. So it was, you know, I felt reassured. I felt like this was somebody who was um, going to have my back, um, you know, um, 
And that made all the difference in that situation to me. And he actually said to me, I jokingly said that to him, he said, uh, told me to go home and to try and have a nice weekend <laughs> and that he would see, I know it, it, it sounds like a daft thing to say and that's their situation, but to have a nice weekend and that he would see me in clinic in CUH the following week. And, you know, I remember driving through the Friday evenings um, traffic with my husband and um, we went and picked up a takeaway um, and I, I had so many emotions going on inside of me, but um, but I did feel reassured after that conversation with him. And um, yeah, it, it it made a huge difference to my mindset. I think. Good, just to ha- he reached out, and he reassured you. Yeah, and um, he did it. You know, um, it was a very human exchange, um, very empathetic, and. Um, you know, I can't imagine how I would have felt if it had been somebody who had come in and just been very matter of fact or, you know, who had presented me with um, the stark facts and reality at that point. Um, now, I know some people might differ from me on, on that opinion, but I think in a way, you know, it wasn't a time for me to talk about, you know, for that conversation um, that, that, could come, that could come later. Compassion is everything, isn't it, Kay? Yeah, compassion is everything. Yeah, definitely. So I went home, but um, I knew I had something else to face when I got home. I had to tell the children. Um, So we did. We we actually, we just got a takeaway from the chipper. (laughs) And we sat around the table and we were eating and... um, you know, and but you know, it was just such joy for me to be able to eat as well because I hadn't, I hadn't really, hadn't been eating in over a month. So just to be able to sit and enjoy food was wonderful as well. But um, I, so you know, I, I didn't tell them all the facts. I didn't, I didn't want to frighten them. But um, you know, at the same time, I was honest and I told them yes that it was the cancer was back and that. Um, you know, that I was going to have to have treatment and that, um, that you know, that I was, that I was very sick. How old were they then, um, Kay? She was older. She was doing, about to do her leaving cert and the other girl was in, um, was going into Turger. Um, that was the, my, that was a concern of mine as well, not to worry her too much because I knew she had important exams coming up. And I knew, you know, I didn't want this whole situation to be detrimental to her future, you know, I I wanted her to continue and be able to do her, you know, if I, I had little like time logs in my mind that if I could get get her over the leaving cert, that would be one thing. Then I could face something else, you know. So I started treatment and I and um I I started to respond very quickly, which was wonderful. Um, you know, it it wasn't without its um, ups and downs. I, I started on one tablet, um, one treat, one oral treatment, and then another one was introduced later on in May. And then um, things kind of took a turn and I ended up in hospital um, with side effects. And I actually ended up just luckily before the last leaving cert exam, I was ended up inside the hospital for a week. So at least I had I had made my goal of getting her over, getting past the leaving cert. Yeah. So um, you know, and then things 
things really started to change. I started, um, I was eating, I was building up my strength. Now, I was, um, of course, worried that, um, you know, things wouldn't work out, you know, potentially. I I, I hadn't thought too much about, you know, the longer term, I was trying to keep my mind very focused. I think, again, that cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to keep my mind very focused on short intervals of time and goals um, to help get me through. At any point in time, um, Kay, like you've talked about being very near death, you know, death almost appeared on your doorstep. Did you ever at any point... Um, or anybody maybe seek or introduce, you know, the, the conversation around palliative care or early introduction to a palliative care team and to help, you know, with that kind of thought process in one way, but also with that whole symptom management. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't ever actually discussed. Um, and it's something that I assumed would have happened because I was in such a precarious situation at the time. I mean, I was, I had all those stereotypical fears about palliative care and what that might mean, um, you know, and even the, the thought of it, I guess, would have been very frightening to me at the time. Um, so maybe in a way, you know, I was glad I was avoiding it because it didn't mean that I was going to die because that's what the assumption that we all have about palliative care, um, that, you know, I can't, maybe I'm not that bad if they're not sending me to palliative care. Um, of course, I know that, you know, palliative care is so much more than that now and that's um misunderstanding that many of us have about it. Um, you know, it, it is there is a, there is a fear associated with it. I think I told you, Helen, that I I I did subsequently um, get referred for something else, and it, it was I was being referred to a pain specialist, and the pain specialist is actually in Marymount Clinic, and that's a hospice, isn't it, Kate? It is a hospice, yeah. And even just when when I realised that, you know. The thought of driving up there and going in there, even though it wasn't for something, you know, like end of life care, um, it just it does um, bring up these emotions within within you. Um, so I think that there's a lot of work really needs to be done around the role of um, palliative care and um, what what it can offer. Yeah, and I like I like I like what you just said there, though, Kay, as well. You know, at one point in time. Um, you understood what palliative care was and it was like coming towards the end of life but now it's changed um, the word hasn't changed and the title hasn't changed but the whole concept around palliative care has changed so much into kind of symptom management and even looking after your family during a very difficult time you know where emotions are high there's a huge amount of uncertainty um, and the fear and it's actually addressing all of those issues in a way, I suppose that's not intrusive to, you know, for many people. But I, I guess we, that message isn't quite clear out there yet. And there's a lot of work to be done, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, perhaps I did miss out because um, if I had been referred, you know, um, I might have had access to, 
you know, more specialist care in different areas that would have helped me. Because as it was, um, you know, I, I have found that the the psychological aspect to, I mean, obviously, it's very difficult living with a stage four di- diagnosis. But that the, there isn't a joined up system for psychological care in this situation. And a lot of... Um, Counseling and um, other, you know, supportive care is geared, can seem to the, well, it can seem to the stage four patient to be directed towards patients who are, who are going to get better. You know, the people who have the surgery and the chemotherapy and get better and then go on to get over, to get over cancer and live, live their lives. Whereas we're in a very different sphere I mean, I'm never not going to be a cancer patient. This is something I have for life now. There's no getting away from it or moving on from it for me. I'm always going to be on treatment until treatment stops working for me. So, you know, it's a very different space to be living in than having cancer and getting, you know, and getting over it. I I don't like using the word cured because none of us know, none of us can say for sure about being cured I I certainly have seen that in my own experience but there's definitely more of an opportunity to move on gosh uh, Kay you've been through I maybe you don't like the word journey but uh, what um, an inspiring story I have to say you know going that roller coaster journey going from stage two to stage four to not really knowing um, and everything that you've been through in that whole course what really sticks out in my mind is the compassion and how how you were told um, and how that, you know, I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll say your oncologist, Terry Carr, made you feel, um, and possibly your family as well. So I suppose the question I'd have for you really is, how are you coping now with everything that you've been through? And knowing that, like, you're still a cancer patient and you're still on treatment and it's not going to go away. And I suppose I'd pose that question to you and to your family and, and your husband and children. Yeah, I guess, you know, in in a lot of ways, um, my life is very much the same outwardly, at least. I mean, I don't look like I'm somebody who's got stage four cancer. Um I mean, my neighbors see me trotting back the road every day. I don't run anymore. Now, that is something that it took me a long time to accept that I wouldn't be able to because that was my my headspace, so I had to find other ways to cope. Um, but really, my life is very similar to, to what it would have been. Um, I mean, that's not to say that it's not incredibly difficult at times, Helen, Um you know, there are, I'm no different to anybody else. I mean, I haven't got this all figured out. <laughs> um, I, I'm, you know, there are, there have been times where I've taken to my bed, um, you know, and cried for the whole day. Um, you know, it, it, it can become very overwhelming at times. Um, but I have had to find different ways to try and cope. And so, for me, um, it's always been about finding different things that challenge me because I think 
that kind of keeps you connected with life, you know, and with moving forward and learning. So um, I, I taught myself, <laughs> I taught myself dressmaking. Um, I, <laughs> um, I do a lot of walking now, even though it, yeah, that was a big adjustment in my head to enjoy walking instead of running. Um, that took a while, but um, it, I got there. Um, I do a lot of advocacy work. Um, I help to run um, Melanoma Support Ireland. Um, I think that's been one of the things that's um, really helped me is having, you know, peer support and people who understand because relationships do change when this happens. I mean, um, I can't, there have been friendships that I had for years that I've lost um, because um, I'm in a different place in a different space now. You know, I'm not the same person that I was. Um, I can't go out and party all night long or, you know, um, do some of the things maybe that I would have enjoyed doing before. And, you know, um, and people as well, you know, they don't want to be confronted by illness or to have to face up to this could be me, <laughs> you know, and it's it can be difficult for people to talk to somebody like me. There's an awkwardness sometimes about it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people don't really know what to say. So sometimes, you know, I, I keep it private if I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to college now Um Oh, yeah. Let's tell me about college. That This is like I only heard this the other day and I think this is fascinating. Yeah, well, I, I went back part time initially because, you know, I, I always wanted to go full time. But again, that overwhelming fear came over me about commitment. And that's a huge thing with me being stage four is this commitment fear you know, committing to long-term goals and things um, because you feel like, oh, what's the point? You know, if you let those negative thoughts get hold of you, it's like, what's the point? You know, it's a waste of money. You're wasting your time. Um, you know, you could find your next scan could be bad and then you'd have to give up anyway. There's so many things that go around in your head to stop you from doing things. Um, it's like a constant battle against them to like, whoosh, get out of here. I'm not listening to you. So, um, so I started tentatively. I went back part-time and I did a two-year course in um, youth and community work. And I really, I wasn't going to tell any of my class about my illness. And I, I got away with it for several months. And then somebody saw something I had done online and posted it in our WhatsApp group about, and after she posted it, I, I felt that it was like the air got sucked out of the group because everybody was almost like, oh, what do we say to Kay? She's got stage four cancer, you know. And that was exactly the reason why I hadn't told anybody to begin with. But, you know, after an initial few weeks of a bit of awkwardness and... um it settled down again and people just began seeing me again for as K. That's great. I'd love to hear that. You know, not K with cancer. <laughs> yeah, which is what I wanted. And in a way, you know, maybe it wasn't such a bad thing because it took a little bit of pressure off me about hiding this huge elephant in the room as well. Um, so, you know, in the long term. I... But you felt you had to. 
I, I did in a way because I didn't want the, I've had enough of the um, poor, poor you <laughs> to do me a lifetime. And I don't buy into that, you know, um, this isn't my fault. Um, okay, I got sunburnt. I, I had, um, I went on sunbeds. Um, this isn't my fault. You know, I didn't, I didn't ask for this. Nobody asks for cancer. Nobody deserves cancer. Um, so there's nobody to blame here. It's just something that happened to me. And it's part of my story. Um, and it's something that I've had to learn to live with. Um, and I will live with. Okay, I have to say, that's, you, you have such an inspiring story to tell. I love your messages there at the end. This isn't my fault. Nobody asks for cancer. But yet you do need to, you know, I suppose, pick up on changes in your body, don't you? Um, when they're happening and, and seek medical advice. Um, Kay, for all those listening today, you, you set up um, a group for melanoma patients. How, could, how would they get in touch with you? Yes, we're, um, we're on Facebook. And do you know what I've noticed actually in the last few months that we have been getting a lot more people coming through to us. And I don't know if it's as a result of COVID and that more people are, you know, there wasn't so many people last year. And now that more people are going back to GP and getting things checked out or um, which is, it's good. I'm glad that they are, but it's heartbreaking to see as well. Um, but we're, we're on Facebook and we're called Melanoma Support Ireland. So um, if you are a patient who has a confirmed diagnosis or you're a close family member who's supporting a patient, you know, immediate family, then you're more than welcome to come and find us and to join. Or, you know, I'm quite willing if anybody wants to contact me directly um, as well, you'll find me on Facebook as well. K English curtain, I'm under. Or you'll find me on Twitter. I'm I'm around on social media. <laughs> <laughs> You're around and about, Kay. Thank you so much. And could I just like give a special mention to your husband and your children as well? Um, you know, included in the story and um, and it's everybody's story really who has a family and you know the reality of relationships being difficult and changing, you know, is said out loud here. So I think that's really important to mention too. Yeah, certainly. It's it's been you know it's been a roller coaster for them as well. I'm sure. I mean, we mightn't always talk about it. I mean, I'm very honest with them about things that are happening and when I'm having scans or when I'm you know what all along the process. I've been very clear with the kids about stuff like that. Um, but we don't we don't sit around and talk and mope about it. In fact, you know, they often um, tell me, you know, oh, mother, you know, just get on with it or, you know, um, don't be so attention seeking. Um, <laughs> don't be using that cancer thing. So I'm not allowed to get away with any of that kind of nonsense either around here. Thank you so much, Kay, for sharing your story. I think everybody listening will have been touched by what you have told us. We're so grateful for that. We also have the privilege of welcoming Shirley McEntee to the podcast. Um, Shirley, it's a privilege to have you here with us. Perhaps you could take us back to when you first had concerns. In 2004, I was on holiday and a friend of mine noticed this freckle on my shoulder. And uh, she said, that's very 
brown looking. So I went back to the GP and when I came home, I went to the GP and he said, oh, we'll get that taken off straight away. So uh, we did and it came back as melanoma. And as I thought, and I think everyone else did, yeah, sure, it's melanoma, they'll cut it out and it'll be gone. I got a fairly big in, um, operation on my shoulder and it was, as I thought, was gone. And I thought, OK, that's fine. Went back to work. I worked as, uh, the last few years as paramedic, but I am retired now. So then in 2005, I had to get another operation. They were afraid that I had got it in my neck, but it turned out that it didn't. Um, it wasn't melanoma. I was OK the, the next few years. And in 2009, I kept getting colds and flus and I went to the hospital actually I was working and they found a mass on my lower left lobe in my lung. So that was melanoma. So they had to take the lower left lobe of my lung out. That was not a nice operation. It was very, very hard. And when I came back, I started on a drug. I really think that nearly killed me. The operation was bad enough, but the drug was very, very tough. Then it was about, it was nearly a year to the day that I had been diagnosed with the melanoma in my lung, that it had returned in my adrenal gland and my ovary. So I had to get them removed. That was in the October, November. And then about six weeks later, I had come home to my parents' house, for my mom's house for Christmas. And I just felt really, really unwell. And I was very cranky and cross. And I just, you know, I just didn't know what was going on. So I made contact with my GP in Limerick and he said, maybe need to go back to Professor Gupta. So, which I did. And I had made contact with him and he organized a scan and New Year's Eve I knew myself it was back and uh, within two hours my neck just swole out like a tennis ball um, so of course we got as drunk as lords and were sick as dogs the next day so that was fine I had no pain then uh, the 2nd of January came and I had loads of pain went in got a scan and it was in two further places which was my left ovary and my neck so um I had gone into Professor Gupta's office to get that news again. And all through the cancers, I used to say, OK, number one, OK, number two. Oh, it's awful, number three. Oh, and by the time number four came along, I was really getting annoyed with Melanova, thinking, well, you just go away, leave me alone. So we met with Professor Gupta and his team, and he told me that the cancer was coming back so fast he couldn't control it. So he said, basically, I had maximum six months to live and I kind of got a bit of a, a shock with that I didn't think he'd, he'd say that to me as in I thought maybe a year or two but not six months and he said he had a drug that was on trial he said it could kill you but it could cure you so I said well I'm dying anyway so it doesn't really make much of a difference so I took that drug and it was tough all the drugs that should be taken to help you all had side effects and they all one would contradict the other one and it just was a really, really hard time. So I, they couldn't do surgery on my, my neck because it was too close to my carotid artery. So we were all hoping that this was going to work out. That was in 2011. So I took the drug and I got some radiotherapy. I got radiotherapy previously on other parts of my body. So the drug... I had to take it every three weeks for 12 weeks. And I went back to work as I was doing that drug. And the days I was working, I'd take 
the next day off or that evening off or whatever because working and, and taking the drug just didn't work out so it was easier to do what I was doing and then I got the all clear on May the, May the 30th they scanned me a month previous and um, I came in for the the results which were nerve-wracking because I felt I felt I didn't feel that ill but I felt that all the nurses were smiling at me because I thought they they were feeling sorry for me and I went into the room and the doctor said to me, I think you should go and buy the biggest bottle of champagne ever. And I was like, why? And he said, there's no can- sign of cancer in your body at the minute. So I was delighted. And I got back to kind of a uh, normal life after that diagnosis in May 2011. I didn't really believe them because every other time I had cancer, I got cut out. So I was always in my head that it was there. I suppose... It's just your own brain is thinking, oh, God, no. But after about six months, I started going, okay, they're telling the truth. It's not, you know, it's not there anymore. And then in 2014, I was, it was January the 13th. I just was very dizzy and very, feeling very unwell and very tired. I just couldn't stay awake. And I went down to my GP and I walked in as like an L shape because I didn't know which way. I thought I was fine. But anyone that saw me thought they knew there was something wrong. And he just said, I think you need to go to the hospital. Um, and I genuinely thought, oh, it's probably my balance in my ears or something. So one of my colleagues gave me a lift to the hospital. And um, Professor Gupta, who's my hero, gave me a glass of water. And he said, I want you to pick up the glass of water. And sure, I was over totally the other side of the room looking for the glass of water. I just didn't know. You know, and I got progressively worse. And he told me that I had melanoma on the left side of my head. So he said there was three options. One was just to radio, radiate it. The second one was surgery. And the third option really wasn't uh, an option. It was just leave it alone. But um, I got surgery. And I just remember going down, getting another MRI scan. And I bawled my eyes out in the MRI scan. I started kind of going, right, I have to do something to get myself back and I did a 300 mile walk from Derry to Crosshaven and Cork as a charity there was three of us and we basically did it it was it was hilarious and it was probably the the best thing that I did I think it really got me back on some sort of track and I had been practicing for, for a few months beforehand walking and walking and walking I think it was three days before we finished we finished on the 18th of August and on the 16th, I think, or 17th, 17th, I fell asleep in the car uh, while the other guys were walking. Then now the person that was driving the car, we'd walk and drive and walk and drive. It wasn't as if we did the whole. I was in, in the car asleep and they'd brought, come on, we have to move. So we had to move down again. But I said, I'm, I don't care now. I'm finishing it. I'm not going to back out now. And it really, really helped me get my headspace away from cancer and away from, you know, and surgeries and treatments. And I have to say, I'm now it's 2021, and I'm still it's it's still a long road recovery with medications all contradicting each other, and not contradicting each other as in, you know, they don't match each other. They do, but it's been a very tough, tough time. I think the earlier uh, earlier surgeries were easier because I was younger. The, the older you get, the harder it's starting to get with because radiotherapy, if you have a certain amount of it, it makes you you get tired. As you get older, it's just people that, you know, people going on sunbeds 
oh my God, I regret every single sunbed I ever went on. I was just going to say to you, 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 you said at the very beginning there, Shirley, that it was your friend who seen this brown, dark coloured lesion on your skin and said, maybe you should. Did you have an awareness about melanoma when you were younger? You know, because we, we've been speaking about this previously. I was a student nurse. I was in sunbeds, hold my hands up, you know, and didn't really have an awareness, not really connecting the two things together. So would you have experience using sunbeds when you were younger? Oh, definitely, yeah. I used to use, sure, I used to think I'd go to come out like Beyonce out of the sunbed. And sure, I was a rasher. I just turned red, you know. And, you know, it's, it's, I had no awareness that this was going to do this to my skin. But now I am totally aware. And this is why I go on these programs to try and let people see girls that are in their, uh, in going to their prom or their debs and, you know, People are even putting their kids on sunbeds for their communions, which is totally terrible. So I think the awareness of melanoma is coming out an awful lot more now with all these shows. And it's brilliant that you're doing this. But I have written a book and hopefully it'll be it's 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 a horror. It's a horrible story, but it's funny. And, you know, there's parts, funny parts in it as well. It's I just hope people get more aware of the whole um, sunbed and sun cream and you know just protect themselves protect their children because I suppose I was only about 18 when I started sunbeds and I used to be on them all the time we were all the same when we were younger you know we had no kind of awareness around the link with skin cancer and when you're younger you never think you're going to get sick anyway as you said Charlie, you'd be able for the surgeries you know more gung-ho and but when you get older it, that's when you you know, realise that, they're, you know, the danger of doing things like using sunbeds or getting sunburned. But did you have any family history of melanoma? I think my granddad had some melanoma on, their, on his hand. My mum's dad, he just got it taken away. You know, it was kind of like, I remember seeing it as a child. Uh, I, I remember seeing it. It was like kind of a scabby thing on his hand. But that was, that was the only, that was the only background, really. I was the first one in all our families really to get it. And hopefully now, It'll stop here, you know, and not go to anybody else. But sadly, my man passed away there in t two years ago of pancreatic cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. That's another, you know, that's another, like she witnessed and uh, helped me throughout everything. Um, so it's, uh, look, she, uh, our skin cancer is very easy to get. And people don't even, like, even on your face, if you don't put cream, I put cream on. Uh, everything is always either factor thirty or factor fifty. In the summer, factor fifty. In the in like in December, but then again, you still don't know what the UV rays. But you just have to really think about it anymore. It's it's just even with the climate change and everything, the sun is getting stronger. Even though it might be as warm, but it's still there. And say on your journey, like your journey from your diagnosis to the present day. You mentioned that your consultant there in Limerick who seems that she had a really good relationship with them. Did you find that the healthcare profession that you met along the way helped you? Definitely, yeah, they did. I, you know, I can't say enough about Professor Gupta is an absolute gentleman and all his team, the girls, the nurses, the care assistants, everything. You know, I suppose I was in there so often. They got, we all got to know each other. I know people talk about the HSE. I worked for the HSE myself. I just got a, a really good team and I'm really so happy about that because there's times when you you don't know and you're kind of going, you know, oh God, who'd I ring? I had a fantastic nurse 
Shirley Baker. Shirley was my uh, my name as well. But oh, she was fantastic. I could ring anytime. I could ri- even ring the ward if it was the weekend, and say, "Look, I've got really bad pain, or I've got this, or I've got that." They'd get the doctor to ring you back. That really helps with people. I don't know what they do in other hospitals, but I know at Limerick, you could just ring them up and they'd tell you and you'd settle. You know, you wouldn't be going to the hospital and that really helped me as well because I could go home to bed and it's my bed. I take whatever they told me to do and you'd sleep so much better at home. I did have days, I have to admit, that I was, you know, very, very ill and everything, cancer, uh, well, skin cancer brings out everything, as in, you know, you, you think you're doing right and then you're doing wrong and then it, it, not, it work, doesn't work. So it just brings a lot of trauma with it or a lot of drama with it, I could say, not trauma. And that would the one thing I would never wish on anybody. I really wouldn't. And I think people need more advice and more big, huge posters and everything. You know, I think sunbeds should be banned anyway. There's no need for them. My God, when I said that your story was going to unfold, it certainly did, didn't it? Like time and time again. Probably some of the words I heard you say, Shirley, were, you know, your cancer was going back so fast that your consultant couldn't control it. That was scary, wasn't it? Yeah, that was very scary. Yeah. And and some other points you made there, like the treatment that he was going to offer you at that point in time could kill you or cure you. But you took a chance. Oh, I did, yeah. I said, look, it's it's either one way or the other. And I did that through all the cancer diagnosis. I was kind of, I used to think, right, just don't think about it, just do it. And you put up the consequences after. Just get the treatment, get the operation or whatever. And then, and that's just the way I am. I don't dwindle over things and be trying to make up my mind. And even when I had to retire, I was just, yeah, I'm going to retire. That's it. I mean, something else I, I picked up along the way, like you're a paramedic, so you would have, you'd actually have a wealth of knowledge yourself and that possibly put you into a fairly scary place. You know, when, you, when you've got that half white coat syndrome, you know, you know a lot, but you don't know everything. Um, and it can be quite a frightening place to be, can't it? Yes, very frightening. In the sense, I was lucky that I knew a few doctors um, that I could ring them and go, could you explain that to me? And, and even at that, Professor Guptig always kind of, you know, after the first diagnosis and then I went to the second, he kind of knew, I think, himself that I was going to be, I was a bit of a warrior that I wouldn't, you know, I, I think only ever cried in front of him once. But I did get the, the story out. of You know, he'd tell me, basically, he'd even show me the scan. Yeah, I did get a bit of help. But I think if people just explain things in layman's terms, it's helpful for every age, you know, young, middle-aged, old. Yes, and everybody. Yeah, everybody. As you said, you, you have the paramedic background, you have medical knowledge and jargon, but we're terrible for using jargon. I, I, I still do it myself and I try and bring it down to the lowest common denominator that I, I can understand and that everyone can understand me. And something I picked up on Shirley as well was the loneliness of an MRI machine. It must be the loneliest place on the planet when you're in there hearing that noise in an MRI machine and wondering what's going to happen. But it's funny how you said, you know, you think you're there on your own, but they have microphones and they're listening. So anybody listening, they have microphones in the MRI machine. But I've been in the MRI machine and, and cried and been so lonely and scared. And I know what that feels like and it doesn't feel very nice. And, you know, the staff are out there, you know, looking after you. And just 
picking up what you said about the, the wonderful staff in Limerick Hospital as well. The oncology staff are just fantastic. They're always there at the end of the phone. They're constantly on the phone. My colleagues in Sligo Hospital, I always see them on their phones talking to their patients. They're always connected. And as you said, that's, you just need someone at the end of the phone to speak with, to talk to, you know, to just say, I have pain, what do you think? And then, as you said, you can get into your own bed at night time and there's nothing like that. I was just going to say that compassion shows through there, as Celine said, you know, you, you talked about the, the team very compassionately and that's probably because they were very compassionate to you. Yeah, they were, they were extremely good, you know, uh, and I'm still under their care at the minute. So if I do have a problem, I just ring and I tell them, the, you know, what's wrong or whatever. And they'll say, well, just do this and do that and see how you're getting on and ring us, tell us what's happening. Just keep in touch. You know, I know myself, if I'm feeling really bad, something's not right. If the shunt in my head causes a bit of problems, you know, it just causes really bad pressure on your head. So you feel like your eyes are going to fall out. It, you know, those little things, say, take this, take that. And I have most of my stuff at home to take. I can just take it and go into bed. And I don't, and if I get, if I get worse, of course, you're going to go to hospital. But if I do everything to try and stay at home because... It's more relaxing at home, but I'm not saying the, the hospitals wouldn't be the best, but uh, it's just, it's your own home, you know. And Shirley, can I ask you along that, like really the way I can, the only way I can describe it is a very roller coaster road, really a journey of ups and downs. Did you, did you find solace and support in any, in any service, particularly was there psycho-oncology involved or did you tap into your local cancer support centres? Did you need to go somewhere to find that or did you find it within yourself? I kind of found it within myself for the first couple of goes. And then when I came up to Galway, I went to Cancer Care West and they were as good as the staff in Limerick. You know, they you know, they just if you want to do counselling or they'd let you talk away. And it was just yeah, they're lovely as well. So I found them very good. Great. So you had good good support along the way. I had very good support. And I had another, actually, sorry, um, a, a lady, Anne Kelly is her name. She was a brain support group. So I got to meet her through Cancer Care West. And she has meetings. I haven't been to one now in a long time. But it's the different people that you meet is lovely as well. You know, um, and the different lives... I suppose just different uh, lives and they all kind of talk about the same thing. Going through the same journeys and yeah, feelings and expressions and emotions. And their families. Yeah, something I've got to say, Shirley, is congratulations on your walk. Um, that's, <laughs> that sounds like probably one of the best things you did for yourself, you know, both emotionally and physically along that journey. I think you showed true determination, belief in yourself because all of these ups and downs and resilience, of course, along the way. I'd like to say thank you so much for being with us today, Shirley. I think you've showed huge resilience, as I said, and self-determination and self-awareness as well, because so hard to face one diagnosis after another after another. And I have to ask, what's the name of your book, Shirley? Survivor. Survivor by Shirley McEntee. Brilliant. It's online. If you just type survivor, I'm sure it'll come up. Fantastic. Shirley, thank you so much for telling your story. I really got a lot from that. And again, I've, I can hear the hope and I can hear the resilience 
and I can hear your personality and your family and your friends network support coming through and it's just wonderful that you've decided to come here today and share your story with everybody so thank you so much Shirley I hope to God people might stay away from sunbeds and cover their skin if you got one person that did it you know what I mean it always does there would be somebody listening to you so somebody somebody would be listening to your voice today that might have been thinking about using a sunbed or just might have been thinking about maybe going tanning and that will you know maybe decide not to do that now but that's you you will have done some good work today in spreading that message for sure Shirley. So that's all for this week. We would like to say a big thank you to our guests, to our co-presenter Celine, our sponsors Novartis and of course to you for listening in. This podcast comes out fortnightly, so make sure to like and subscribe and tune in next time to continue on this journey with us, learning and understanding more about melanoma. Until then, here's a sneak peek at next week's episode. And when a cancer or a melanoma comes into um, your world, the equilibrium or that balance that we so desperately crave as um, individuals, um, goes off kilter. Um, So for patients returning to work, it is extremely challenging 